Hello, I'm Matthew Burrett. And I'm Taylor Romans, and this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. This week on Hard Beeswax, Matthew and I spoke with Sarah Perilli, Waldorf art teacher and Green Meadow Waldorf School alum. If you are enjoying listening to these episodes, please consider helping us continue this work by making contributions to the show. You can do this through our website and our Patreon account by making one-time donations, or if you could, consider making monthly contributions, which goes to support our work here at the Hard Beeswax Podcast Studio. If a financial contribution is not in the cards, please consider sharing our episodes with friends, family, or anyone else you think might enjoy what we are doing here at the podcast. We thank you all for listening. We realize that we are just two individuals who are part of this global educational movement, and we want to be very clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. Welcome, Sarah Perilli, to our podcast. That's really, I'm really grateful that you're here today. Um, you are a Waldorf alum and a Waldorf art teacher, and it's my pleasure for you know to talk with you today. Welcome. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here, and I've been enjoying your podcast so far, and slowly hearing other people mention that they've just heard about this new Waldorf podcast. Yeah. Well, it was a. It was a. <laughs> It was a little bit of a out of the blue creation uh, for me and and for Taylor. Um, well, first of all, I mean, let's just start at the very beginning. So, how did you and maybe your family uh, discover Waldorf? What was your story uh, of of first learning about Waldorf education? Well, both of my parents had you know challenging experiences in public school, and they knew they wanted something else for their children. And I think my mom had some kind of catalog or something that was a mail order that came in and she saw the book Education Towards Freedom, Mm. ordered that book and was like, this is it. This is where I want to send my kids. And then soon thereafter found Green Meadow and we weren't too far away in New Jersey. Uh Uh-huh. So you grew up in New Jersey? Yeah. Just for the first years of my life and first two years of kindergarten. And then my parents were sold on Green Meadow Waldorf School and we moved when I was in first grade. Oh, wow. So you entered in first grade too? That's what I did yeah. too. Yeah. Well, I was there for kindergarten, but we commuted for two years. And then oh. once my parents got to know the school, then we moved up. We lived actually next to the auditorium. For oh, right. Childhood. Uh, a favorite sledding hill of mine. <laughs> <laughs> So, Myself as well. Yeah. So you were actually about, what, three years behind me in, in Green Meadow? And yeah, you were senior because we always looked up to the upperclassmen <laughs> and we had sibling connections in that class. And I was a freshman in high school. So I remember who was a senior when you're the, yeah. the young ones entering into the high school. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. And a little bit embarrassing because I, I can't say <laughs> that I quite remember remember you particularly, but uh, I'm, I'm, great. I'm glad that as adults, we have a chance to connect <laughs> or yeah. reconnect. I think it's fair to say that I don't remember who was exactly a <laughs> freshman when I was a senior. <laughs> so, um, well, let's start at the beginning. So what, what were your first impressions of a Waldorf classroom? What, 
you know, what struck you? Well, I actually remember the first day of first grade. I remember being in the um, Green Meadow Gymnasium and our teacher, or soon-to-be teacher, Mr. Blair, speaking out to the audience and saying that he was going to share a story that was specifically for the first graders. And it's amazing to me that I remember him saying this. And then he told us the story. And I remember filing out of the auditorium and going into the first grade classroom and everybody sitting in a circle. And the one thing I remember him saying from that day is that there were many, we might see many familiar faces and that we had two new students joining our class. And I remember looking across the room and seeing the two girls who had joined our class, Sarah and Ryan. Oh, nice. Yeah. And um, so you must then have been in the same first grade classroom that I was in, and I remember the deck and the warm red yeah. colors and, you know, just out, had kind of had your own little playground, red brick, um, looking in towards kind of the high school area. Um, yeah. And did, you know, I, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me more. Tell me more about your experiences there, your earliest experiences. I have really fond memories of that rock wall outside of the building. There were maybe cedar or hem I think hemlock trees lined up along the wall. And we had a relationship with those trees also in kindergarten. And those are my strongest memories from the early grades of playing around those trees, weaving stories in those little nooks and crannies between the rocks and the roots. And yeah, that, those are, that's kind of the strongest picture. Yeah. Those, yeah. Like first and second grade. What's particularly bringing back memories for me is that we literally were in the same classrooms and had the same playgrounds and, and yeah. the trees that Sarah's talking about. I remember them being very special too. They more tended to be like the, the bases for different games or where we would play, you know, <laughs> in uh, cops and robbers and stuff like that. <laughs> I was definitely more of the mindset of fairies and gnomes. <laughs> Did you do the chop rocks where you'd chop one rock against a softer rock against a harder rock and make a chalk? And then, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Make, it would make face paint down by the stream with those. They do that here at, at Hawthorne Valley. <laughs> yeah, yep. Making face paint, making concoctions. Yep. yep. Awesome. So, so yeah, so let's just keep telling, keep telling your story. So, you know, what stood out for you in the earliest years and into middle school and any particular block or experience? Well, it's definitely artistic as a child. And um, I come from a family where my parents weren't particularly interested. I just kind of arrived and really fit into Waldorf education. Um, it really suited me in terms of the arts. I remember picking up handwork pretty quickly. I was one of the handwork students that would watch very carefully, get it, and then just go right into my own world and do all the rows very, you know, quickly and smoothly. Um, blocks that stand out to me are botany in fifth grade and being able to draw plants and do beautiful illustrations for mm -hmm. these plants. And um, I teach a lot of fifth grade painting, so I get to actually paint plants with children now today. Mm. Nice. Yeah. And then what? And then, go ahead. Go, no, no, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying, moving through middle school, I was 
you know, I was a little bit more academically challenged than some of my classmates. We had some brilliant minds in my class. It was hard to kind of hold your own as an artistic soul. Mm. Um, but I remember we had, we had a, we had an English or a grammar block maybe in seventh or eighth grade. And I remember suddenly waking up to the English language and I told my teacher that I really enjoyed um, the grammar that we were learning about. And he actually called my parents and said, it's really surprising that Sarah actually really took to this. (laughs) (laughs) We definitely all have those aha moments, right? Yeah. Where the thing that the things that were so challenging then suddenly click. Yeah. Yeah. So then when you were coming through coming through Waldorf middle school and maybe the art, I feel like it's in middle school where the art becomes a little bit more refined. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think about, I was someone who maybe was more artistically inclined and I always felt frustrated with wet on wet watercolor that it, you know, you, you put things on the page and they go all over the place, right. It's that there wasn't that, that opportunity to demonstrate precision. Did you find you know, had you been cultivating artistic talents just out of your own passion on the side? Or was that something that maybe as you came into middle school and had those opportunities in school to do that, that it maybe crystallized more for you? According to my mom, I've been drawing since I could hold a crayon or a pencil. And the joke in our family is he didn't buy reams of paper. She bought boxes of reams of paper. <laughs> so I remember drawing, you know, my entire life. And I think I, I really enjoyed that part of the main lesson book process. And it was definitely someone who took to wet and wet watercolor and enjoyed it. Um, I'm Pisces. So speaking to that watermelon, water element is, you know, I mean, I'm able to go with the flow in that regards. Yep. I'm a, I'm, I, I get you. I'm a Pisces too. Oh yeah. I am a Leo. <laughs> <laughs> we like setting things on fire when they're yes. not right. Yes. <laughs> and did, um, did David Blair stay with you all eight years? Yeah. So we were his only class that he took first through eighth grade. And he was kind of known for stepping in and picking up a middle school class that had a teacher have to leave in some way. So he had picked up a middle school class before us and then we had had us first through eighth and then went on sabbatical and did the same thing again. Yeah. Where he picked. Nice. Yeah. And so then when you came to the end of middle school, like this is something we always talk about with our guests. In so many cases, kids are at a school that's only first through eighth and there's this seems to be a break between eighth grade and the high school was it ever a conversation for you about whether or not you were going to go on to Green Meadow I think High I School? I never questioned it. To me, it was like, here you are. This is your place. Um, I actually listened to one of your earlier podcasts where you discussed this. And I went back and maybe even mentioned at a faculty meeting. Or we, well, we had a meeting with the rising eighth grade parents and shared that, you know, in the Northeast, you really feel like there's this sense of camaraderie with other schools and that it's natural to move up into high school or at least have that option. And kind of wild to imagine that most schools kind of end at eighth grade, um, yeah. that you wouldn't even have the choice to go to a Waldorf High School. But for me, it was very clear that this is where I was going and where I belonged. Right. So Taylor, you you didn't know this yet, or maybe you did hear this. Um, so I was a senior when when Sarah was in ninth grade, um, 
So, yeah. And uh, so, so Matthew was at some point in his life cool. <laughs> I, would. I honestly remember him how you described yourself in the earlier podcast where you introduced yourselves as being a little bit of a loner and kind of walking. I can picture you walking by yourself. Yeah. I walked by myself a lot. <laughs> March into the beat of his own drum. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So, so what, um, you know, I, I know maybe Matthew, we talked about this a little bit, but were there any traditions particular to Green Meadow High School, you know, that coming in as a ninth grader, you know, what was your, what was maybe the culture of the school like for you coming in? Thinking of traditions, culture, um, one thing that really stands out to me is that the senior, we, I think we maybe had Monday morning meetings and the seniors had to give like a presentation or a short talk throughout the year. So I have a very clear memory of each Monday morning meeting, one of the seniors shared, they had, to, I think you could talk about anything you wanted, but sharing like a little five minute presentation. I know that when I did mine, I talked about the mail, like um, it was just on the cusp of people getting email. And I really had a relationship to our mailbox and pen pals and writing letters. And I spoke about, um, yeah, really loving handwritten letters. <laughs> um, nice. I, I think you touched, you've touched in the past in the shepherd's play. I am rehearsing oh. play right now. And, you know, it's just amazing how many students really see that as the yeah. um, sort of their favorite moment of the school year. Yeah. Yeah, that music is something else from the yeah. Shepherd's Play. Yeah. So it's it's an honor to actually be in it these days. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who are what roles have you had? I I've played Gallus, surprisingly. I don't know if I could pull that off now, but when I first joined the school, I really wanted to be in a play, and it turned out that that was the role that was available, and then I didn't realize. Um, kind of how pushy that character is, which is <laughs> not my personality at all. And I, I think I played an innkeeper one year, and in most recent years, I've been the angel. Oh, nice! Oh, nice! Uh, so you must have a good singing. Sorry, I think we were both commenting on how that's a hard part for singing, and how you must it's have a, a beautiful part. voice. I do really enjoy singing, which I didn't really discover until my adult life. I was very shy about singing as a teenager. Um, but every year I try to get out of being the angel because I think I'm not good enough. I think it's hard to be a spiritual being and, and really carry the play. And then once we start rehearsing, I'm like, oh, you just really enjoy being in the play. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matthew, Matthew, I feel like is a career shepherd. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Just, just... Whereas... Yeah. I was always the star singer. I only got to do it a few times, but yeah. I, I must have given off kind of like young and chaotic. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great Leo role. <laughs> yeah. So um, before we move on, um, Waldorf High School, um, often a concern is, you know, social life. So what what did you do to you know, in terms of social life or extracurricular activities? Did you do an international study or or what? Yeah, so I, I took quite a few dance classes out of after school. That was really an outlet for me as a teenager. And then in 10th grade, I did go on exchange to Switzerland, to Dornach. So it's actually, you know, around the corner from the Gertianum. 
And I had intended to go for four months. And I remember by my second month, I was just starting to get the hang of the language and feeling like, like I could be fluent at this at some point. And I requested to stay an extra six months and that was, a, or extra two months and that was approved. And so I was actually there for half a year. Nice. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I would have been a different person without that experience. It really opened up my world to different culture, a different language, a different way of thinking, like thinking in a different language. Um, the freedom that comes with, you know, being able to get on a tram or a bus or a train by yourself, go to the city, walk around. Um, so it was a step towards a meaningful step towards adulthood and, you know, uh, independence. Did, did you find that a different personality emerged when you learned a new language? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, I feel like I just came back probably feeling more self-assured. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It is so funny. I think that it's just, it's almost like growing up with siblings, growing up in a Waldorf class of people who know you very well. Um, Sometimes your individual remark, you know, remarkableness can, can go on, you know, kind of be taken for granted. Yeah. Like, yeah, they yodel. I honestly just wish they'd yeah. stop 90% of the time, right? And then you can go somewhere new. And and I think there is some confidence that comes from yeah. having people with fresh eyes see who you are yeah. when you're used to people who are just pretty used to you being who you are. Yeah, that's a good point. I would say that in my class, I was never part of like a larger group of people. I've always been more on the periphery, but comfortable with that. And then, you know, lots of overlap with individual people and friends. And when I went on exchange, my um, my exchange was showing me maybe a school yearbook and pointing out all these people and saying, they're not going to be friendly. You're, he's not going to talk to you. And I had the opposite experience where everyone was like, oh, the new person and nice. getting to make friends and work through the language barrier. And yeah. That's awesome. That's very cool. And did you do that in your 10th grade to 11th grade? When, when did you go on exchange? The second half of 10th grade, yeah. which I think was big for me. Yeah, that was similar to my experience as well. Nice. So when you came toward the end of your Waldorf High School journey, what, what were you thinking about doing next? Where was your head at? And then what did you end up doing after but, high school? But before that, we need to talk about senior project. Oh, yes. Oh. What was... <laughs> Yeah. What was, yes. I'm sorry. I always forget to ask about senior project. Whereas Matthew only talks about the senior yeah. project. Everything else is just footnotes. <laughs> I did, I did dance as my senior project and I put on a little performance with a few of my classmates who were in it. Um, being a visual artist, I was probably a little bit more into the dress that I sewed for it. And I had backdrops with shattered mirrors glued on there. Um cool a regret of mine is that, you know, I didn't really end up not having a mentor who could really teach me choreography. And I didn't, I wish I had learned more of a skill, mm. but I think part of that experience is just learning what you wish you could have done. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel like I do need to take this opportunity and ask if you remember what my senior project was about. Oh, I do not. No, I it's okay. <laughs> I had designed my dream, my my dream house, and it 
if you were sitting in the room, I've always felt a little bit embarrassed because of how egotistical the whole thing went down. <laughs> but if you don't remember, that's a good sign. <laughs> well, if you, I'll share my egotistical moment. I remember one of the teachers asking sort of what the inspiration or the purpose was behind my project. And I said, well, if wasn't obvious from the performance and you couldn't get it. <laughs> and like, I've been like horrified. I'm horrified that I said that. I apologize to them later. <laughs> yeah. It is like, it is just such a weird time to be a human. And I yeah. feel like as a senior, you're like so empowered and so sure that you know everything that there are a lot of cringy moments that emerge. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, <laughs> Next step. Now back to my question. Yeah. So I would say that actually by um, eighth grade, I knew kind of where I wanted to go to college. This is not because anybody pushed me on it, but, uh, you know, growing up, um, there were numerous families that commuted to New York City for to go to Christian community. Yeah. Mm. And I remember being very young and saying, what is this? And our parents being like, what do you mean what this is? This is New York. And, and I remember looking at the buildings and not having a concept for this being a state that people lived here. And they said, oh, well, you know, this people, they explained a city to me as a young child. And they said, you could go to school here when you're, when you're older. And as I grew up, I've always had an interest in sewing and at the time fashion design or costume design. And I had heard about the Fashion Institute of Technology. And I already knew by kind of eighth grade that I wanted to go there. Mm. It was the only school I applied to in, um, in high school. And I managed to get in. And it wasn't until afterwards that I found out that it's very competitive. And I probably would have been way more nervous at my interview if I had known how hard it was to get in at the time. Oh, wow. Amazing. So, so what at that time was the dream? Like what, what was the... Or, or was it just a vague, these are the skills that I want to have to have these possible possible doors open in my future? Yeah. I would say that as much as I am a visual artist, I'm also someone who really loves working with their hands and sewing. And I think when I applied, I was really envisioning going into costume design and being very creative with making things, making costumes. And then very quickly in my first semester realized that it's not like costume design isn't a very lucrative job. Uh, it's not how I would think now, but you know, at the time I was sort of taught that and they suggested any way that you go into fashion design and then see if you want to specialize somewhere. And I really took to my classes. I absolutely loved, um, majoring in fashion design. I specialized in knitwear. I really loved my college experience. And as courses and things opened up to me, I just kind of went with the flow and started following down a different path than what I had originally thought. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I mean, it's, it's always so interesting to me that, you know, as a young Waldorf student, you're, you take up knitting, you know, you make these basic projects and then when these skills or these possibilities then circle back around later you know what was your experience like coming into or coming back into handwork from a different lens as a young adult um when I majored in fashion design I think a couple semesters in you had to choose a specialization and knitwear was the only specialization 
where you made your garment from scratch. And of mm. course, I had a strong relationship to knitting and understanding knit structures. So it seemed like a natural fit. And I learned how to work on two different kinds of knitting machines, including like an industrial manually run knitting machine. Um, and then there were larger machines at the school that we kind of, you know, were educated on, but didn't know too much about them. I did an exchange to Nottingham Trent University in England for knitwear. So um, had a little bit more of a broader knitwear experience there. But we had classes where the way they taught knit structures or like knitting patterns is they cut out like two inch, two inch squares of fabric. And we'd have a, what's called a pick glass, like a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. And we would look at the fabric and we would count the number of stitches per inch. And then we would de-knit it. So rather wow. than something to learn it, we would take it apart and we had to make a record of every stitch. Oh, wow. So people That's... who don't actually knit learned knit structures through that class. But... Through deconstruction. Yeah. So, but I, I love that class. I think it was the only person who thought it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you had indicated um, in our, one of, in our initial email together that you actually went through a period of pushing art away then afterwards. Yeah. What, what was that about? So I'd say I learned a lot of like really great skills in terms of drawing and, you know, fashion is, you know, a more dis design-like approach to drawing in college. And I benefited greatly from that, but it is a stylized way of drawing. And I felt that I lost my ability to draw things realistically from life. And at the mm. time, I just didn't really know how to get back into it or how to practice drawing from real life. And then coming out of college, I worked for a small knitwear design company that should have really been my dream job. And I did a lot of machine knitting and production design and didn't get too much credit for it. And I learned the lesson the hard way that you shouldn't stay at a job for three years that makes you miserable. So combination of an excess of stylized drawing followed by three years of a very difficult job situation, I was burnt out. Uh -huh. um, and I, for, you know, the next, you know, I'd say my late 20s, I actually just worked in a furniture store and sold sofas. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just so happy to like, let go of, um, just to take a break and be at a job where people appreciated me and paid the bills. And yeah. Sometimes yeah. a job just needs to be a job is what yeah. I always say. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't really paint or draw during that time. I kind of just let it go. You had to go to sleep so, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then how, how did you find your way, you know, back into artwork and then beyond that into Waldorf education? So for the job I mentioned, I moved to the Berkshires in Massachusetts and I think lived there for about 13 years. And in the last two years, I had found out about, I had known of a painting school nearby where I am now in Philmont, New York. It's right down the road from Hawthorne Valley Waldorf School. And there, there's a school there called Free Columbia. And they have offered an anthroposophical-based painting training as well as other courses based on 
who's kind of coming towards them. So the program is different now than what it was. But at the time, it was a painting and sometimes puppetry course. Mm. And I had quit my job. Um, and all of a sudden, I got it into my head that I could just go, go have a year of painting. And then I ended up doing it for two years. And I feel like my teacher at the school was the first person who made me feel like Rudolf Steiner's work was accessible to me. I mm. previously thought it was just these really difficult books that some of my Waldorf graduate friends were getting into. And like, I just didn't have the capacity to understand them. And all of a sudden through doing it artistically, it opened the door. Wow. Um, and right when my last year of training ended, a position opened up at Hawthorne Valley for a handwork teacher. And I had always thought that if I, if I was going to be a Waldorf teacher, I'd be a handwork teacher. And I had volunteered at the Great Barrington School just for one second grade class to kind of check it out. And I applied for the job and I felt so strongly that I wasn't ready for it and so strongly that I should apply. Mm-hmm. And then they invited me back for two interviews and I thought, right, they're interested because they wouldn't invite me back if they weren't. And I was praying that I didn't get the job. <laughs> and I didn't get the job and I was so relieved. <laughs> I just thought you need this experience. And a few weeks later, they called me back and asked me if I wanted to be the handwork assistant. Wow. And the next year, I kind of like came in the back door and then suddenly we, you know, a teacher was out. They needed a filler eighth grade art class. All of a sudden, the seventh grade art teacher, who was the chair at the time, needed someone to kind of give her a break. And then suddenly I was teaching middle school art and then it grew from there. Wow. Yeah. I think, I think that's so fascinating because I feel a little bit similarly about my initial foray into like, who's this Steiner guy as yeah. an adult, right? Of it is written in a way that is not easily accessible, right? It yeah. requires focus, attention, time. And honestly, I think without a guide, most people are kind of lost in it yeah. or pretend like they know what they're talking about based on, you know, try, trying to prove something. But I think that there is something to be said for finding those principles more accessible through artwork. Could you talk yeah. a little bit maybe about what some of those first ideas were that, you know, maybe hit home for you? <clears throat> Trying to stretch back into my memory, but for example, we read Philosophy of Freedom, which I would say is just, it's a hard book. To, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I would ever go back and read that on my own. I would have to really want to do it with a study group. But because we were able to my teacher was able to show me how she worked with it artistically. Let's say you're reading about a really challenging concept. And if you were talking about something being able, I can't think of a good example, but if you're looking at like percept concept and trying to understand the difference, if you were to draw something that, you know, let's say there's an opening in something, you can actually draw something that has an opening and then things that can, you know, if you're talking about permeability, drawing lines or shading that move through something else that you've already drawn. And by being able to do that at the same time, it helped um, 
it helps some of the work kind of land with me. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very accessible through, through art. I, I, that resonates with me for sure. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, talk, we spoke with Douglas Gerwin about the high school teacher training program and he was Matthew, both Matthew and myself. He was our teacher when we did the high school teacher training. And he talked about how when he was building the high school training that the art classes for the high school teachers, that that was the most important work that they were going to do in the training. (laughs) It had to be done like secretively or like, yeah, like almost misdirected to. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That, that it was really important and that a lot of high school teachers were going to be resistant, you know, to that, but that it was, and I think, I think you're right. It's like, almost like the same role that the artistic work had is in the building of a main lesson book. Yeah. I would say in a high school art class, you know, my goal is really to hold a container or a vessel for something to happen. It's like you're holding a space where they can move through an experience while simultaneously teaching them practical skills that will make, help them feel accomplished and know what they're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have seen some of your YouTube videos about your watercolor painting in grades one, two, and three, and, and so on, and, yeah. and fifth grade, too. Could we dive into that now? I think, sure. yeah. um, you know, let, let's yeah. talk about topic. your work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say that coming out of my painting training, one of the best things I ever did in that experience, which I don't know that I'll have the opportunity to ever do again until I retire, is to spend a long period of time with individual colors. Mm-hmm. Because I still to this day rely so heavily on that two-year experience. So we would do multiple paintings or one painting where you just work with red for a really long time. And if you imagine red kind of in its spiritual beingness, you kind of have to enter enter into that more from a spiritual meditative place. Like it exists in the physical world, but then what's read in the spiritual world. So that training really helped me come in as a Waldorf art teacher and begin to work with creating um, color exercises for students in the lower grades. And when I did my teacher training at the Alkion Center, my final project was like how to make painting or how to work with creating painting exercises for children. Hmm. So, so what, I mean, when you do look at the early grades, right, something that's so characteristic of, and I think it's so cool that we get to dive deeper into the deeper meaning behind artwork because so frequently it's kind of that that's the end of the conversation is they do a lot of art and it's really good right yeah. but that there is all of this deeper intention behind it and you know frequently working with a very limited palette in the lower grades and yeah. that i think creates the opportunities to really experience color yeah right and i have these memories of doing just in red, like the yeah. ground and the tree and the leaves and the sun. Like I, I have memories in from my biography. Can you speak to how, like what role does developing a relationship with co- the colors as individuals, what role does that play in 
maybe the early grades. What's the benefit yeah. of that? Why do that with a limited palate? Yeah. Um, there's so much I want to say. I don't even know where to start. Yeah. And <laughs> I can start in 11th grade. So if I'm working with teaching abstract art to 11th graders and I have students in that class who've made their way all the way through the grades, we can have a conversation where they will pretty much unanimously agree that colors have different moods or different qualities. Like, you know, we could say, Matthew, you just don't particularly seem like a red person. (laughs) Blue or green from what I have a sense for you. And the kids really relate to that immediately. So this goes back to their earlier years where they've had these experiences working with a color And they actually really get to know that color, that quality, and that mood. And then, you know, my intent is not to, oh, I'm teaching them color theory, but you are. But you're doing it, you know, um, like I'm not, our goal isn't to teach them color theory, but it is part of this larger artistic picture where they know that yellow and blue make green because they've had that experience so many times. And I think our, our world is so fast paced. You think that you might jump to conclusions and say, Oh, they just need to know it needs to be explained. But the fact that they live into that experience is sometimes it's almost like a miracle that yellow and blue come together and create green and what green is it? And is it darker, is it lighter? Yeah. Well, I'd like to, press on this, you know, kind of the spiritual side of color. And I think also it goes into the way you paint wet on wet with, you know, allowing the colors to kind of be out of your control. And it's kind of annoying for people who like, you know, I think maybe a little bit more on the OCD spectrum, maybe like, no, I want to control this and I can't control it. But uh, could you speak to a little bit more about wet on wet painting and, you know, not painting an outline, but letting the form develop? Yeah. So Rudolf Steiner described colors that are in water or liquid form as being closest to their spiritual state as you can possibly get in the physical world. And if you imagine, if you imagine the gesture of something, like if I move my hand, you're watching your rhythm, those gestures go beyond your physical body. So if you take a tube of, let's say acrylic paint and you put it on the page, it doesn't go anywhere. And you have, I mean, you have lots of control and there's you know, other ways of painting and working with color that are really worth doing. But when you paint, um, with a liquid color and it lands on a surface that is a little bit more alive through it's enlivened through the water. It goes beyond the touch of the brush and it allows the color to have a little bit of its own voice within Mm. the painting. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I never knew that. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm then curious about, you know, in the first grade, you're doing wet on wet and through the lower grades, you're almost exclusively in your, you know, outside of drawing with the beeswax crayons, 
um, yeah. doing these this wet on wet watercolor. At, is there a developmental reason why at an age you move away from that or move into different mediums? I'm I'm just curious, kind of you as a teacher who are you know, straddling this big age range and all yeah. of these different developmental places. Yeah. What, um, maybe what's inspiring what you're bringing at what age and maybe yes. speak about some of your favorite alignments. Yeah. So in the lower grades, the wet and wet watercolor is providing a space where children can have more of a soul experience of something that might be happening in their main lesson. It could also be just things from nature or the festival life, or, I mean, you could come up with a pedagogical painting, but I mostly kind of supplement main lesson or paint seasonally. Um, and you're building your relationship to colors and like entering into form out of color, which is a great, also a great topic on its own, um, how to work with that. And by fifth grade, that's really the pinnacle year in the class that I actually teach the most about watercolor in. And then by sixth grade, you're shifting into, you know, the space of adolescence and all of a sudden, you know, waking up yourself as an individual a little bit, being in your body and noticing that, you know, I'm different from that person over there. And this is, this is me and this is my thoughts and shifting from a little bit more, you know, I don't want to say it's only a group mindset and that children aren't individuals. They are absolutely individuals um, all the way through, but they wake up to individuality in middle school. So the curriculum shifts drastically in the arts to um, at least visual arts, dark and light drawing and working mm. with shadows. And it is a security for them to study the world around them and to actually work with shadows as they wake up to the shadow of their self. Wow. Yeah. I always thought about that in ninth grade with, you know, this idea of contrast and dark and yeah. light and that, um, you know, as, as almost like as morality becomes more murky, right. And as, as all of those things that there's something really reassuring with black and white, yeah. right. And experiencing all of the, 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 uh, intermediary shades in between. Yeah. Yeah. So ninth grade is kind of the pinnacle year of four years of dark and light drawing. And that's not to say that they aren't working with color in their main lesson. They could certainly, I think they should ideally paint as well, moving up through the grades. There just isn't space to do that so mm -hmm. easily these days. So I feel like I mostly offer dark and light drawing because um, of the time that we have. And just interesting that you mentioned contrast because the four questions I train my or help my students be able to ask themselves when they're looking at the world around them is where is it darkest? Where is it lightest? Where are there areas of strong contrast? And where are there areas of gradation? And it's amazing how much contrast has to do with the drawing coming to life. Yes. And that if I go, I can hold up my drawing and I say, look, look at this one little area, see how it looks now, take 10 seconds of shading to bring out that contrast. And they're all like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's actually scientifically proven that the drawings that most people universally love 
have areas of really strong contrast and gradation. Yeah. What, what What's fascinating to me about that is I've always thought of adolescence and puberty as this kind of, you know, astral storm that kind of yeah. is, is so, I mean, it could be colorful, but it also feels like it could be just like a brown soup. And so you're studying yes. contrast to kind of, yeah. to, to, to individualize, you know, to say you, you are different. You're having all these crazy feelings and you don't know who you are, but here's a way to discover yourself by, by finding the edge or the contrast or whatever. Yeah. I haven't heard anybody say that. That's actually really beautifully put. And it helps me think of the work, the refinement that they're doing, like they're refining their skills and their sense. Um, yeah. yeah. So when you, you know, as, as an art teacher, you're someone who is kind of, a supporting cast member to the work of maybe main lesson blocks and, and, you know, this kind of greater curriculum arc, how have you found moments to like bring you, Sarah, to your yeah. work? Right. And, and what are maybe some projects that you've had done with students that you feel were really powerful? I'd just love to hear some examples because I think that speaking from my own experience as a new teacher coming in, I, um, didn't talk a lot. I yeah. I kind of did what I was told and was like, okay, that's what was done. And then there were these moments where it was almost like I learned to listen to my educational intuition. It's like, I think yeah. I have this idea and I think it might be awesome. And a lot of times they were and sometimes they weren't. But um, but I, I'm just curious about what, you know, as you got your sea legs under you as a, as a teacher and familiarity with the curriculum from the point of view of a teacher, what were some yeah. things that you brought as an individual? I feel incredibly fortunate in how I sort of fell into my job and that in a relatively short amount of time, I felt like people trusted me to come into the classroom and teach art in the way that I felt was the way to bring it. Um, I mean, that said, starting at the beginning, like your students are your greatest teachers and I learned so much just through the doing of it and working with students and gaining a sense for classroom management in those early years. That's definitely a big challenge. Um, but I felt like I've really had the opportunity at my school to be who I am and people trust trusting in my work yeah. that I know what I'm doing to the extent that I know. Um, Cause it's always, it's always a learning process and journey. Um, and, you know, let's say in the fifth grade, I've taught fifth grade painting since our current 11th graders were in fifth grade. I've taught consistently since then. And even though I'm supplementing the main lesson, I am the one who's coming up with the painting exercises. And I will either use exercises that I've come up with before, or sometimes like, you know, I get an image working with a particular group of students, or I try something new. And I feel like I'm able to work with my own individuality in creating these exercises, you know, I don't have a class teacher breathing down my neck to do something different. I feel like 
um, the class teachers are just grateful and very supportive of the classes where I do come in and teach painting and yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah, real, that you get, you get to listen to your intuition and do what feels right yeah. for the group in front of you. And it sounds yeah. like a partnership as well. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I'll just speak to fifth grade painting a little bit because, you know, right now, especially with my current group of students, it's one of my absolute favorite classes to teach. And, you know, you have students that have been working with this artistic process through all of these years, and they're kind of at their peak um, ability for it. And, you know, I don't even know if I can really articulate this in words, but um, there are times where something really magical or really special happens during those classes where you might bring yellow in or blue in as the first color in the same way that you've done many times before. And then something else is able to come into the being after all of these years of painting in this way. Um, I'm not sure if I'm articulating actually really what I want to get at right now. I, I feel like I get it though, that even yeah. though you're doing maybe the same painting again, that yeah. there are still these magical moments that arise when yes. something new, right? Yeah. That, or there or new life or, or something yeah. un, unexpected. I think maybe a good example of that is, you know, if they're in botany, depending on where the classes fall throughout the week or what I feel the students, you know, what's speaking to them the most. So I might do an algae painting with them. And I've been fortunate to go to Hermit Island each year with our mm. seniors. So I get to go out to the tide pools. And so I have a little bit of a relationship to algae and learning a tiny bit more just by nature of going on that trip. Um, so it's something that I can paint out of my experience versus painting sort of meeting it through my imagination. Like I can't say if I was in ancient Egypt, so I have to meet that through my imagination. Whereas the algae, I have some experience. But then with my imagination, I'm picturing what is it like to be under the water and swimming through the kelp forest? Like we hear about the, we, we, we know trees as a forest, but then there's this concept of the kelp forest. And I've painted this and each year I'll do it a little bit differently. And with this particular group of students, it suddenly occurred to me that I should add seals. Oh. Just like swimming through the kelp forest, like it's their playground in a way. Yeah. And when I painted it, we started all in blue. We built the whole thing up in blue. And when I painted the first seal, there was like a tiny gasp in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the moments that you really wish for or hope for. And it's amazing when they happen. And yeah, somehow that group just inspired that painting. Well, it's just amazing. That's so special. How, yeah, it's amazing how art speaks to us and can speak to us in different ways. Yeah. Okay. I. I and I, so. I, oh, I, sorry. You go. I can't. I can't help um, but um, take the opportunity to ask of a Waldorf art teacher. You know, the the smell of the paints are one of like the most iconic. I mean, we almost named this podcast instead of hard beeswax, like you know. Ah, the 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 Prussian blue. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> what is going on there? 
Um, well, they're, you know, they're plant-based pigments and, you know, some of them I think do have egg in them and you're essentially smelling rotten egg. It is a distinctly Waldorf smell that you, yeah. smell again, you know, that's what it is. And it's kind of funny. Like I was making a joke with my seniors. I have them for senior portraits. We're just getting started. They were being a little bit nice. silly and kind of apologized for it. And I was like, so the interesting thing is that you're going to grow up and you're going to get older and more mature, but the age group that I teach stay the same. So no yeah. matter what, like every year I'm going to teach kids, they know how badly it smells, yet they have to stick their nose in it to make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm teaching second grade now and I don't always teach that age group for painting, but I'm following another, I followed a, teacher second through fifth with painting. And then he moved back down after sixth grade. And so I'm back down with him again and getting used to teaching second graders again. And it's like, they just have to smell the paint. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Taylor, I interrupted you. Go, go ahead. No, no, no. I, so I'm, I'm just curious if you like want to talk about, it's so cool that you, um, you share so much of your work, right. That you have, you know, on your social media account, all of these, all these paintings. And, yeah. you know, I, I found coming in as a new teacher that I, you know, in my training, being around other teachers and sharing materials and just hearing their stories about what they were doing in the classroom, it gave me so much inspiration yeah. and really fed my, um, you know, fed my, my well, right. That I draw from as I go and teach. And, um, and, and I guess you also have, you know, some videos on YouTube showing painting. Can you speak a little bit to maybe like the inspiration behind sharing it and what you maybe hope that others can get from seeing your work? So earlier on, if I, when I shared things, um, on let's say Instagram, um, like I shared the process of working with wet on wet watercolor as part of my Waldorf teacher training. And that I think mm -hmm. I just, I did for fun. And then I was invited to go teach at an in-house teacher training at a Waldorf charter school in Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs mm -hmm. called the Mountain Song Community School. And their school principal had connections to our area and had asked around if there was, you know, somebody who could come and help her school, which, you know, is a younger school. And she felt like she wanted to offer something for her faculty. Nice. She was the new principal there. And she wanted to have a little bit of their own training and invited me to come out and teach at their in-house training. So I taught the painting piece for three years, three summers in a row, which I absolutely loved. It was really fun teaching teachers and being in a very different school and, you know, location. And the second year was when COVID happened and mm. I ended up still going out there and taught a few like socially distanced classes, just to a few of the teachers. And then I mostly worked in their kindergarten room all by myself and made these videos for that school. And they were incredibly generous and in that they agreed to make these public and available to everyone. Yeah. So especially during COVID, homeschoolers or people that had to homeschool because they weren't mm -hmm. able to be in school 
were able to watch the videos and I'm just really happy to share my work and inspire people wherever I can and really encourage them to build a relationship with colors and try to learn how to create their own exercises versus just being like, it has to look like, you know, the standard pumpkin jack-o'-lantern painting that you might do in second or third grade. Yeah. I think there's real power in giving adults who didn't experience this when they were children opportunities to yeah. play with wet on wet watercolor, right? And I mean, I I remember my parents coming back from parent mornings when they would do painting exercises with our class teacher, just kind of in this weird state of almost childlike glee. And they, yeah. you know, oh, it's terrible. You know, my angel doesn't look like an angel. But the, there was something that they felt like they missed. Yeah. Yeah. I, that just reminds me like the, the number one piece of advice, which it, I think it's hard for people to believe that this might be my number one piece of advice, because I know that my paintings like are painted by someone who practices this and is accomplished. But when you try, my best paintings are that people seem to relate to the most are the ones where I really work out of the color first and foremost and focus on the students having an experience. If I think like, oh, we're gonna, we have, they're in ancient Egypt and I have to paint the pyramids and I think I have to paint a pyramid and put it on the page, that painting will not, it'll, the students will still benefit from it, but it will not land with them in the same way if I don't start with the color first and the mood. So letting go of it having to be good and letting go of it having to look like recognizable form is the best way to kind of bring a beautiful painting into being. Hmm. I, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, about seeing um, different student um, needs or are you, do the faculty ask you about um, what you see in terms of your students' painting? I I guess what I'm interested in is, you know, students with learning differences and stuff, and how do you work with that? How do you see that come out in their paintings? Do you often have conversations around, oh, I'm noticing this about their art, and, or, you know, how, how does that work when when you are working with individual students and, and seeing them year after year? I would say at the moment, you know, if we are talking, if we're having discussions about students who um, need extra support in some way, we haven't really had the opportunity to look at their artistic work on a great level. Um, I mostly go to high school meetings versus going to lower and middle school, even though I do teach down in there. So I'm less involved a little bit in some of the child studies that we might have in the lower grades. Um, but when I do think of it, it is nice to at least share artistic work from really any student with um, faculty where you can hold a space and take somebody's work in for a moment. And um, yeah, I just, I feel like we're still, even though we're, we're kind of out of, mostly out of COVID, the years that it took to kind of get through that with teaching, it's been harder to have 
those kinds of discussions. Uh -huh. So I feel like yeah. we're at a point where we're trying, we're coming back to things like that. Yeah. How do you see art and especially the art curriculum in a Waldorf school meeting the unique challenges that children in our time are facing? I don't think I can answer that specifically to art, but I would say as a Waldorf graduate and also as just a reassurance for parents wondering if they want to send their children here through high school, that when you go to a Waldorf school, you experience the things that come easily to you, and then you experience the things that maybe don't come so easily to you. So having this well-rounded you know, educational experience, I just think is so beneficial. Um, I think that, you know, I, I have a memory in my mind of the, you know, my, the pressures of the greater world, right? When okay. I was a child or some yeah. kind of vague understanding that there was, you know, was war going on or, you know, like yeah. smartphones came out when I was in ninth grade, eighth grade, right around there. You know, I remember like logging on to G Gmail at night on my mom's desktop so I could, you know, message my classmates. But that was kind of there. There was, um, you know, it was still pretty easy to just not have a TV. Yeah. And in many ways, extend a protective bubble around your kids. Okay. And I feel like increasingly what I saw when I came in as a teacher was a lot of kids really, really carrying more weight than I perceived their yeah. being when I was younger and just kind of a holding a adult heaviness maybe yeah. from a young age. And I maybe that's not what you see, or I, I don't know if, if that's something, because in many ways, I think that the Waldorf curriculum is yeah. just as it was prescribed is quite curative. Yes. But I think there are a lot of tools within that to emphasize certain things, lean into other things, depending on the children who are in front of you. And yeah, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, yeah, go ahead. Just, I'm sure we've all experienced that anxiety in children is at an all-time high and especially coming up the last few years and then given what's happening in our world and where we're going I mean that we're not introducing them to a world on stable ground and they know that from a really you know from quite an early age onwards um so yeah I think I think everything that we're doing them is hopefully giving them the tools to like have an experience of themselves to be as assured of their self as they possibly can be so that when they do go out into the world, they, they feel that they have a place in it. They feel like they know themselves and they're not going out doubting themselves and doubting the world. I feel like that would be the most difficult way to enter into it. It's like, it's going to mm -hmm. take a lot of courage for, for them and for us over the next few decades, keep going. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, generally speaking in art classes, I'm trying to provide 
um, as I said earlier, kind of a container or vessel where something can happen, but also supporting them on a greater spiritual picture. And that's where I love where I have flexibility in my work. So um, I'm not teaching abstract art this year. Someone else is, but because um, it frees me up to do other things. If I was, I wouldn't bring the same painting exercises every year. So they still have this experience of working with, you know, abstract forms and concept and art. But I might bring exercises that speak to something that's happening in the larger world. I might say it or I might not say it. Yeah. But it will be living in how I bring something. Yeah. It, it just strikes me that of of all the activities in a, in a Waldorf school, doing art is one of the ways to get closest to the, the non-tangible, non-physical, spiritual world, like to allow, to allow a student or even an adult who's, who's painting to, to have that experience of actually observing a color be itself or, or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I, it's very clear to me why Steiner thought art was such an important part of the Waldorf curriculum. It's just hard to often describe what that is. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a question. It's more just a general comment. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, if you what your question was. Um, go ahead, Taylor. I was going to say maybe then what... What would you say to someone who asked, why is my, you know, why is my eighth grader doing watercolor painting? How is this serving their development? So I would say with the arts, I am trying, I'm trying to build a foundation and I'm building on that foundation each year. And if you want the practical aspect of it, they are learning color theory. They're learning how to create form. They're eventually learning about the difference between, you know, drawing with lines versus working with shapes versus, you know, areas that might not have any edges. These are all the formal elements that make up a painting or a piece of art. And we're learning them through the grades, through experiencing them, through direct experience. And it isn't until they reach the point where they're becoming more self-reflective in who they are and able to like hold their own and see the others and see the world where we start to have more concrete conversations about them. So, you know, if, if parents are like, oh, well, why can't my child do abstract art? It's like your child is absolutely welcome to go home and paint abstract art or go to a museum. Like, I was inspired by going to museums as a child, but in terms of what I'm bringing in the school, I'm bringing them through this larger experience. And I think I thought a lot as a high school teacher about the, the hidden things that are taught that we assume a functioning adult possesses, right? And that where where are those things? Where do they come in? And I I think that there's so much to be learned in in artwork. I mean, it's it's amazing that um, you know, the the 
where something ends and where something else begins, right? Yeah. And the relationship between assumption and perception. I I did senior self-portraits and it was amazing yeah. for me at for at for some students had such a bizarre, distorted understanding of their own facial features. Yeah. And and it was you you so much about them was revealed. Yeah. Through, you know, like, buddy, your nose is bigger than that. And it is okay because yeah. you look great, but it's it's not that small and it doesn't look yeah. like you, you know, it, it's just yeah. this fascinating. I think there are all of these things that that um are revealed yeah. through through art that go beyond whether or not, I mean, I know my example was about accuracy, but but they go beyond whether or not you're accurately or realistically capturing what you're seeing. Yeah, I think one of the challenges of, you know, striving to be a good art teacher is helping students work through the fact that when you do artistic work, you will always come up against yourself. Yeah. Like, there's no way around it. Like you do artistic <laughs> come up against yourself and that's going to mean different things for different people. Um, but I try, I've just found like in middle school these days, I really need to like create a space where the kids feel, you know, as self-assured as possible. And so I will remind them on a regular basis that I have never met a student who hasn't gotten better at art. Everybody, everybody has good days in art and they have bad days in art. And that mm -hmm. is part of the process. And I have bad days in art and I teach figure drawing um, with eighth graders and sometimes in the high school and then the senior portraits. And I have days where like, suddenly I can't draw faces anymore. It's just yeah. something. And that, that is totally okay. And it doesn't mean that you, you can't do it. Yeah. 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 And I, I also think that one of the things I noticed was that, you know, you, you talked earlier, Sarah, about this well-rounded education and that there are some people who are feel really strong in some areas and others who do not feel that same strength that yeah. in traditional, more maybe mainstream education, such an emphasis has been put on academic performance. You know, yeah. how quickly can you do math? How, you know, how large is your vocabulary? How quickly can you read? How impressive are your essays? And in many cases, a student who is strong in those areas may go through the majority of their education and never have the experience of looking around the room in fear that they're the worst at yeah. whatever the class is learning. And so I always felt this beautiful balance in going into art class and especially, you know, not only the fine arts, but then the practical arts and handwork of people, some of the people who are really agile in their head yeah, did not, that did not carry over to their hands and yeah. the empathy that yes. came from that experience, I think is incredibly powerful. And, you know, I, I see a world where we kind of skill sets are becoming more and more refined and specific yeah. Yeah. and this lack of, you know, well-roundedness in our careers. Yeah. And I just, I love the idea of someone who may eventually be a brain surgeon. Yes. Of having this deep understanding that 
the work that an artist does or the work that that cabinet maker does yeah. is incredibly challenging. Yes. And, you know, and, and and valuable because they have had that experience when they were younger of trying it themselves and experiencing that. Yeah, that's very beautifully put. So, I I don't know. I uh I often wish wish that I still had, you know, an art class once a day to, you know, just yeah. Like right? <laughs> keep keep the keep the juices flowing. I also tell my students that like, you never, ever know what's really going to happen in your adult life. And I said, you might actually have an experience at a job where you normally wouldn't draw. And suddenly you're the person in the room who has the most artistic skills. And you might not have thought of yourself as the artist in your class growing up, but you may actually know more than you actually realize. And then for the students who like, I can think of one in particular. I mean, he could just not draw to save his life year in and year out. Like, I mean, it took so long for the transformation to happen and it didn't really happen until like close to the end of eighth grade. I mean, that's like seven years of trying Mm -hmm. and then finally getting to the point where waking up and being like, oh my God, this actually is pretty good. It looks like somebody or what I'm drawing or, you know, and I feel like that's where Waldorf education really offers something that you, you just can't get that anywhere else. And witnessing that arc being, that's a big arc. You know, usually when students, if I have new students in middle school who have never drawn before, they usually take to dark and light drawing, observational drawing fairly quickly. And they kind of get over that initial hump. And so for somebody to have been here for that long, and continued to struggle and then like had a breakthrough. Yeah. That's really amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Find you not to give up. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up, I was just wondering if you had any um, questions for us or anything like that. Well, I'm so, I don't have a question, but I'm really grateful for what you're doing. Um, and I've been very, you know, adamant about kind of listening to the podcast in order. So I'm slowly working my way through them, but I've really appreciated listening to some of the things you're talking about because we've kind of, we haven't been able to have like faculty study and things over the last couple of years. And it's been a little bit of a refresher hearing both you and your guests speak about different subjects. Um, And I did jump ahead to the Advent one because I saw that and just hearing sort of like, the fourfold uh, representation of the human being through Advent. Um, that was really beautiful. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really appreciating that you were able to, to do this and hold this space. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad. And I know, I mean, just for, there is some, there's also an element I know for myself that's purely selfish because, you know, when you're used to having this purpose of going to school and, you know, singing songs every month because there's something to celebrate. Um, when that goes away, it's, there's a pretty big aching hole. And I know that I've been really grateful to have this as, um, you know, a way to remain connected. And, and just for both of you, I, so we've been, my husband and I are in Wisconsin right now and we just were up in Viroqua 
for a couple of days and visiting the school up there yeah. and uh, toured the youth initiative high school. And then we were in the grades school building, which is an old school house with a big, you know, L-shaped old hallway. And we're going through with the enrollment director. And she was saying, I was asking, you know, where are your class teachers coming from? Who are they? And she said, you know, we actually recently had a woman from Austin named Susan Beck. And this was someone who, you know, I hadn't thought of in, you know, 20 or maybe like 15, 18 years. And um, who was a class teacher a class teacher where I went to school. Her son was a few years younger than me and she had stayed at my house. <laughs> and um, I walked into her classroom and saw her and I burst into tears. Yeah. And it was, it was like this, this, it was so powerful to see someone who is connected to this thing right? And who was connected to my experience as a child in this thing, which is something so warm and so treasured and that I hold so close to my heart and is just keeps coming back as, as like every year it has a bigger and bigger role in my life. Yeah. You know, and, um, it, it just like, it, it really hit home for me of like this, this Waldorf thing is really special, Yeah, you know? And, um, and uh, I, I just, for those of us who have been able to to reconnect, either through teaching or through sending children through Waldorf schools, yeah. I think that um, there is there is just in a, in a time where so many things are so far apart and we're so fractured. There's just something really, really powerful about having this a, thing. Yeah, having a conversation and connecting because. I mean, everything you've said, I, I can think of my own art teachers and like, oh, that's what they were, were trying to do. Yeah. I wondered if you wanted to end our, our conversation by just talking about the children's books that you've illustrated. Or I've been really fortunate to illustrate two Waldorf children's books through Florist Books. They actually found me through the hashtag... Uh, Waldorf illustration, <laughs> nice. um, which I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that would have led me to illustrating a book. But I actually put the wish out kind of in the universe that I wanted. I think I had a blog at the time. I don't have it anymore. And I had written that I was hoping to find my dream illustration job. And I kid you not, the next day they wrote me and not because of the blog. They, they were actually looking for someone. And they wanted, it was Floris Book's first, I think it's their first children's book that was their concept. And then they sought out a, um, an author and they sought out an illustrator and they wanted to do the telling of the Waldorf uh, birthday story that is told in oh. kindergarten. Oh, nice. So that was the first book that I illustrated and just it's very simple, but the earlier images that are taking place in the spiritual world are mostly wet and wet watercolor. Yeah. And then oh. the ones that show earthly life are more layered watercolor painting. Wow. Just to speak to that movement kind of in the spiritual world. And then I illustrated a second book for them, which is a shortened version of a chapter book by, um, I'm going to, I'm forgetting her name at the moment. Um, she wrote the seven year old, wait, seven year old wonder book, I think. Oh, I should know this. Um, 
The second book is called, the first book is called Through the Rainbow. And then the second book is The Kingdom of Beautiful Colors, I think. And both of them feature rainbows. That was just coincidence. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of waiting or seeking for my third book because working with the publisher, you're kind of it, with Isabel Wyatt. Is her name Isabel, Isabel Wyatt? Wyatt? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Looking that up. Both of those books were, you know, kind of outlined by Floris, which is really helpful for me as an artist. And I'm looking for my third book where I can really work with my, my individuality in a, a different and new way. So the first one, I didn't work with the, the author because um, of the nature of the book. The second one, the author is deceased. And so putting it out there for my third, yeah. third author. Might cool. Be <laughs> that's, that's so, and, and how cool that, um, you're working in a way to where you get to, you know, have all these different lanes, right? Yeah. Teaching, illustrating. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could keep talking for hours and hours, but I am mindful of I know. all of our time. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you so much, Sarah, for being on our podcast. Really grateful and honored to be here and looking forward to hearing more of your interviews and work. Yeah. Well, we really, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I think there, like, as we started building this kind of online community, it was, let's yeah. see what happens. And you were one of the first people who, um, who I interacted with. Um, and it was really, I'm so happy that we made this connection because of course, Matthew and I have our, you know, sphere of people who we know. Yeah. And now it feels like we're, you know, beginning to broaden and every conversation brings new connections. And well, it's really. The last thing I'll share, which I think is kind of humorous, is that I've been listening to your podcast on Spotify and I thought, oh, I wonder if anybody else has done anything like this. And you know, you can see like click more that are like this. And it was like, we're sorry, we do not have any other results or, you know, other <laughs> yeah. things. So I was like, you're truly doing something unique that's out there. <laughs> yeah. Very, very cool. We, um, yeah, we're, we're certainly enjoying it. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Oh, well, Sarah, it was so lovely to meet you. You too. And um, maybe, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And we look forward to hearing what you do in the future. Come back when you have your third book. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Would you like to be a sponsor on Hard Beeswax? Email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. That concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, please visit our website, hardbeeswax.transistor.fm.